All right, we are in uh, Revelation 15, and there's only eight verses here. So I'm going to read a few of these things, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, starting with verse 1, and I'm reading from, I just grabbed this one, what is it, just so you know what version it is. It's the Net Bible. Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. Seven angels who have seven final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger is completed. This is, I'm going to interrupt myself right there. This is amazing to me because the entire tribulation period is evidence of God's wrath. He has had it with the world. The time has come for him to pour out his wrath. And, you know, aside from the fact that we are Christians, if not for that fact, we would be in totally deserving of his wrath. So if, if, as we've looked through Revelation, and we've seen the times where God has poured out a judgment here, poured out a judgment there. Remember, we've got the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now we're getting ready to see what all the uh, final seven judgments, the bull judgments are about. So we've already had 14 judgments. And how many times did we read, but the people did not repent? But the people cursed God. But the people turned their back. They did not stop worshiping devils and demons. I mean, how many times did we read that? And God, it's not like God did not give them the ability or the opportunity to change. He just, look, you know, it's so funny because discipline is supposed to, you know, this as well as I do, discipline is supposed to what? Correct behavior. Yeah. And so if we look at the tribulation as God's absolute tremendous discipline poured out on this world, in many ways it had no effect on most people. And, and in fact, I shouldn't say it had no effect. The effect it did have was to push them further and further and further away from God. But that's not God's fault. Right. It's their fault. So here we are in verse 1 of 15, and it tells us these are the final seven plagues. They're final because in them God's anger is spent, it's completed, it is finalized, and then it ends. Mm -hmm. So verse 2, Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had, those who had conquered the beast and his image, and the, no, and the number of his name. Now we, we heard that before too as well, and we'll hear it again. They were standing by the sea of glass, holding harps given to them by God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and astounding are all your deeds. Lord God, the all-powerful, just and true are your ways. King over the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name because you alone are holy? All right, I'm going to stop right there. Well, actually, I should probably read the rest of verse 4. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right, so we'll stop there. And this is really, this chapter is really the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of the end, because this is really a prelude to what's going to happen in chapter 16. It's really fascinating. It's like this break in heaven. 
So, you know, it's, it's funny when John is seeing so much of what's being poured out on the earth and then every once in a while God will direct his gaze to the inner courts of heaven. And that's kind of what's happening here. We went through chapter 14 and we talked about some of the things that happened there where we talked about the harvest, the two harvests that occur and the angels that have these specific missions and the whole thing. And then all of a sudden now... We're back from the earth, back into heaven, and John says, and then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. And so what we've got here is, here's the overview. So before unleashing the final seven of 21 total judgments, 21 in Revelation 16, during the coming tribulation period, John the Apostle, he sees numerous things happening in heaven in preparation. And this is fascinating to me. It really is, because every once in a while, as I say, we see this glimpse of what's happening in the heavenly realm as God prepares to do the next thing. So John sees the temple in heaven. He sees the glass. This is also pointed out in Revelation 4, 6. And the seven angels with seven bowl plagues appearing with them. Now, they don't have the bowl plagues yet, but their job is they're going to pour out these bowls. So they step up. I mean, you can in your mind envision this pageantry that's happening there. It's just everything is orderly. Everything is done in an order and consistently as God has determined it. And everybody plays their part and carries out their part the way it's supposed to be carried out, according to his will. And then what we're going to see here uh, in the following verses, the elders, the 24 elders, we've seen them before. And they are going to, at the sound, when they see these other things, including the seven angels, step out. And we'll find out where they're stepping out from. The 24 angels, 24 elders, pardon me, fall down and they worship. And then we see the uh, people there singing. Singing. Those who had conquered. Those who had conquered the beast in his image and the number of his name. What does that mean, obviously? They're dead. Yeah, they're dead. They were martyred. Isn't that interesting, the way God sees martyrdom as a conquering? Mm. It is. It is a conquering. Those people who die have conquered Satan, the beast, Antichrist, and death. They're through that portal. They're over it. They're, it's all behind them. They will no more have to deal with any of that. So those who had conquered, and they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb, and they gave praise to God. And then following the singing and praise, which we'll get to, there's a loud voice speaking from this temple, the, the, the sanctuary in heaven, telling the angels to go and declaring the judgments of God to be righteous. All of this, again, presents or represents the beginning of the end in God's judgment program. So let's look at these real quickly here. Verse 2, those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. Well, we're talking about martyrs, as I said, who died in their faith or for their faith in Christ during the tribulation. And it's going to be, as John tells the very opening chapters of Revelation, it's going to be multitudes. The number who die, it's going to, he couldn't count them. He could not affix a number to them. That's how big it was. They sing the song of Moses. I mean, can you imagine... That how many people are going to have to die every day during the tribulation to make that kind of a number? I mean, it's just, we've got, what, close to 
Eight billion people is it now on the face of the earth? Eight billion. I think that's it. I think. Eight billion. And um, is that right? Is that right? I think so. It could be. But even, even if it's just eight or nine, I mean, imagine, that's, that's billion. Mm-hmm. So imagine, besides all the judgments that occur in the first 14 judgments, and millions and millions of people die, and yet there's a lot more that are still going to die. So this, was song, this song was sung by the Israelites after they had successfully crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 15, 1-27, but it's a slightly different song. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's reminiscent of the victory that Israel had because they crossed the Red Sea because God parted the waters. And so they, they turned in exaltation and victory and praise to God and sang this song. So verse 3, great and mighty are your ways. Verse 3. They sang that song, great and astounding are your deeds. Another way to put it. God's will is accomplished and he is glorified. This is what's fascinating about the book of Revelation. God's will is going to be done. Period. End of story. Satan can try as hard as he wants. The ungodly, the godless, can partner with Satan knowingly or unknowingly, and it doesn't really matter. It just doesn't matter. Because ultimately, it is God who is great and mighty, and His will is going to be accomplished, and He is glorified in what happens in this world. In this world. Now, 15.4, verse 4. Uh, that was the last one I read. Who will not fear you, O Lord? This past Wednesday, I talked about the fear of the Lord. Um, Mark had asked, those of you who were there, you know that Mark asked me, to, it was so funny, on Sunday he goes, hey Fred, and he started to talk to me, I think I shared this, and he goes, and then somebody interrupted, and then they left, and I said, what did you need, Mark? He goes, oh, I forgot. And then he goes, oh, I get it. Are you going to be here Wednesday? I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay, do you want to lead the Bible study? And I'm like, uh, on what? And he goes, well, whatever you like. <laughs> so I did, and I chose the topic, Fear the Lord, because I think it's an undervalued and not often talked about today topic about the fact that Christians need to fear the Lord properly in a proper way. And so what I like about this is they're asking the question, who shall not fear you? And one of the things I mentioned Wednesday is for every person who ever lives on this earth, God is one of two things to them. He is either judge or he is savior. So if he's your judge, you are going to fear him immensely because the Bible says it is a dreadful or terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, once that happens to you, you have no recourse. You are at His mercy. And if you don't have salvation, that leaves Him one option. But if if He's your Savior, then we fear Him in a different way. And I explained all that the way I see it Wednesday, which I won't go into now. But who shall not fear you? That's a question that's rhetorical. Everybody will. everybody will. And if they're either going to fear you as judge or they're going to fear you as savior, period. There is no if, ands, or buts or any halfway in between. One or the other. And this is basically what the people 
um, in verse 4 are asking God, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name because you alone are holy? So everybody who does not know him and they leave this earth, this life, and they go to the next life, everybody will bow the knee. We know that. Everybody, including Satan, everyone will bow the knee. And those, unfortunately, who do not know him as Savior and Lord, will spend the rest of eternity in abject, dreadful fear that grows and grows and grows. Whereas those who fear God willingly, fear offending God willingly in this life, they have this fear that grows that they don't want to grieve Him, sad and disappoint Him or anything like that. Those of us who do that will have a growing tremendous good fear throughout eternity that will be perfected because we will do everything that will only please Him and bring glory to Him. So all will fear, willingly or unwillingly. He Himself, in His nature, is holy. And we will become like Him perfectly then as He is creating us to be now. So that's pretty exciting, because I don't know about you, but it was like David Fowler said this morning, I don't feel that way sometimes. I don't feel that way sometimes, but that really doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter what our feelings are. It, is, it matters what God says about us. His sway extends over all the nations. So, um, you are, and true are your ways, king over the nations. It's inclusive there. There will not be one nation of people who do not, when he returns physically and he sets up his millennial kingdom, there will be not one nation who does not do what he says needs to be done. And he does put in a little bit of a disclaimer here, I guess. He goes, for those nations who refuse, they will be judged accordingly. During the millennium, he rules with a rod of iron because he's still dealing with people who have sinful natures. The righteousness of his acts is now visible to all, referring to the action of Revelation 15 and 16. This, these people in heaven are seeing what's going to be played out, and they are basically saying, this is your righteousness. These are your righteous works. This is what should happen as you have decreed. So they're in complete agreement. So both, the, this is interesting. What they're saying basically is both the gospel proliferating throughout the world and the destruction of God's enemies throughout all nations, and not just in nations, but in spiritual places, principalities and powers, all of that will occur. All of it will occur. So, when the millennial kingdom is over and the new heavens are created and then we begin that whole thing again, there will be no need for the gospel. There will be zero enemies because it will just be people who are righteously perfected by God. So, verse 5, let's, let's pick up there. After these things, I looked. I love the way John does that. It's just simply him saying, oh, and then I saw something else. He's segueing from one thing to another. After these things, I looked, and the temple, the tent of the testimony, which is literally the heavenly tabernacle that was given to Moses. Here's the pattern, Moses. 
This is what sits in the heavens. You make it exactly like this on the earth. So that's what we're looking at here. The tent of the testimony was open in heaven. Now this is fascinating. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple dressed in clean, bright linen, wearing wide golden belts across their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and from His power. Thus, no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. Now, I find that last part, well, it's all fascinating, but that is specifically fascinating to me. Let's look at this. So here's John. After this, I saw something else. It's like this big accident happening. Wow, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, there's another accident. It's just this thing that keeps happening. And so John's attention goes from this to this to this as directed by the Lord in the action that takes place in the heavenlies. John is pointing out what he sees next. And this is really, as I said, his way of stating a transition to the next scene. So the sanctuary of the tent of witness, what do... What is your, somebody read your, um, let's see, uh, where is it? Verse uh, 5. Somebody read verse 5 for me in their translation, which I know is different from the one I have. This says, after this I looked in the sanctuary of the tent. A witness in heaven was opened. Sanctuary in the tent of witness in heaven. Does anybody have anything different than that? The temple of the tabernacle. The the temple of the, okay. Okay, so what's fascinating about this is there is the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. The sanctuary of the tabernacle, it was open, which implies that it was what? Closed. Closed, for some reason. It's open now. These angels come out. They're ready to go. They're dressed in their own type of battle gear. So this references the heavenly temple of which the earthly temple was perfectly patterned and Moses was not to get anything wrong. Can you imagine the stress? I mean, I'm sure God blessed him and and helped him. But imagine the stress of that. You read through how they created the the tabernacle and all the, everything that went into it, and you sit there and you go, how did, wow. Remember all that. Yes, and then do it. Very ordered. Yeah, goat skin for some of it, this skin for something else. You have to have the little tassels down here. I mean, it was very, very specific. So we can assume that it was done correctly. God gave the vision, the instructions to Moses. He was successfully able to pass it on. God infilled certain individuals with the ability to work in gold, some with the ability to weave, carve, all kinds of stuff. And it happened. And God was pleased with it. So it was done correctly. But as detailed as that tabernacle is in the Old Testament, it was only a pattern of what lives would exist in the heaven. So John sees the Old Testament type tabernacle in heaven. Something he never saw, by the way. He never saw it. He saw the uh, Herod's the temple, temple the, yeah. the temple that Herod built. He was not around for that. But here he is, seeing this heavenly temp- tabernacle. And the opening of this tent of witness points to the coming judgments. It's like, I've been in plays before, and you know, you're, you're waiting for your cue off stage. And when you hear that line... Just before you enter, you're ready. You're ready to go. 
and then you get excited and you're like, oh, I hope I don't ruin my, forget my lines and whatever. And you get out there and you don't forget any lines because you're, these angels were basically prepared for this particular time. And this was their job and they knew when to come out. And so that's what they did and they were ready. Out of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the tent of witness, came the seven angels with the seven plagues. The seven plagues, they weren't carrying them. They were just said, these are the individuals designated to have those. Seven angels came forward out of the inner chamber. Some commentators believe that they actually came out of the Holy of Holies. It's possible. I don't know. The text doesn't really say that. It's possible. They were clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. All of this points to their purity, their righteousness, their holiness. We know in the um, Old Testament when Moses was overseeing the building of the tabernacle, a lot of it had to be covered in gold. Mm -hmm. So in order to make that happen, you have to pound it, and that could take a while, and then you have to, sometimes it was needed to be purified. And so that would have to go through the fire and melted and then used to create lamps or whatever it is they did. Now in the case of the, what do you call that? Sorry, the seven, the Jewish candle menorah. Thank you, the menorah. That was one, made from, pardon me, excuse me, made from one huge 75 pound nugget of No, gold. come here. You come so, here. Uh-uh, right here. Up there, excuse come me. Here. Really cool. So their job, basically, they're dressed pure, righteous, representing holiness, and their job is to purify the earth for God with the plagues that they pour out. So they're ready. In Revelation 15, 7, one of the four living creatures gives them the golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now it's interesting here that these bowls they're referenced in Revelation 5.8, where we read God's reference to the prayers of the saints to him in bowls. And I'm thinking, this is interesting, because here are these angels coming out, holding the bowls, right? In Revelation 5.8, God talked about the fact that the, um, the prayers of the saints were collected in these bowls as a fragrant sacrifice to him. So it's almost as though, in this particular judgment... There's a cause and effect that the prayers of the saints, and then lo and behold, later on you've got seven angels carrying these golden bowls that they're going to pour out onto the earth. Are they the prayers? Well, we can maybe think that they might be. That God, well, what were their prayers? That God would bring justice. Yeah. That God would, would avenge their deaths. And so this is, I believe, exactly what he's going to do. So the, this is the God who lives forever and ever. You know, one day Satan will wake to the realization, not that he sleeps, he will have to admit he was a created being. He did not exist previously forever. He will exist forever, but it will be existing in a second death forever. He was created. We are created. God, in its triune connection, all, th all three persons in one were here forever and ever and ever. And so the people in, in heaven recognize that, they give him glory for it, they remind each other that this is God who lives forever and ever. 
And it's a reminder to us of God's power and greatness. He has no end. He sees everything. He's omniscient, omnipotent. There is nothing he doesn't know. And there is nothing that he can't help us with because of that. He sees the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, and everything in between, and every possible twist and turn it could take. And that's difficult for us to understand. So verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. This is really reminiscent of the time when the tabernacle had been completed, the sacrifices were done, everything was blessed and dedicated to God, and what happened? The Shekinah glory filled the temple, filled, excuse me, the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle, and it was so overwhelming that the priests could not go in. They were kept out. But what's fascinating about this, this is in heaven. This is in heaven where you're talking about people and creatures who are not sinning and haven't sinned since they've been there. So for all the martyrs who have died and now join God there um, in the future at this point, their sin natures are gone. They're not there as sinners. They're there as fully redeemed and righteous and perfected saints. And yet, this smoke was so overpowering that they could not enter the tabernacle because God was there. And they won't be able to get in there until the pouring out of all seven bowl judgments occurs. So, so no one's able to enter the temple until right. that happens. Right. Okay. Right. And let's see what verse is this. Okay, we're in 8. Yeah. yeah. So this is the last verse. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. And, again, we have no idea how long it is between... Bowl 1, bowl 2, bowl 3, bowl 4, up to bowl 7. We have no idea of the interval of time between those. So Revelation 15 is similar in some ways to Revelation 8. When the Lamb broke the original seals, you remember that? Way back in Revelation 8, there was silence in heaven for about 30 minutes in preparation for what was going to happen. This is the same kind of thing. It's not silent. But there is this pageantry that takes place in preparation for what's going to happen in chapter 16. The action of the tribulation, right now it's like a parenthesis, and then once chapter 15 is done, then chapter 16 can start as the bowls are poured out. And then John will then eventually turn back and see what's happening to the earth, but watching it still from his vantage point in heaven. So Revelation represents, I'm sorry, I should say 15, represents the pageantry leading up to the final judgments of the tribulation. And what's fascinating about this, you know, God is not a capricious God. He's, we know this. He's not God who says, I'm angry, and I'm angry until I don't feel angry anymore. We know that's not God. That may be some of us. I've been that way sometimes uh, in my younger days. 
when I was stupid, but I thought I knew everything. <laughs> so, yeah, I know, we all do, right? But God isn't like that. God sets this time and says, okay, my wrath is going to be poured out starting right here, and it will end right there. And when my wrath is done pouring out, then I'm done being angry. That's God. I mean, how, wouldn't it be something if we could do that? I'm angry now. I will be angry for two more minutes and then we'll be chums. So, <laughs> especially with some of the people you meet in this life, God will conclude his judgment on earth with these seven plagues. Then, following this, now this doesn't happen in chapter 16 or 17, but following the seventh bowl, then Christ is able to return. And eventually he does. Um, I get the impression, and I could be wrong here, um, that a lot of these things happen from chapter 16 until Christ returns. I think they're happening like almost simultaneous, like boom, 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 right one after the other. And again, I could be totally wrong. I don't know. I don't lay awake at night wondering if I'm wrong or right. It's just, you know. But our Lord will return when these judgments are done. So, people alive on the earth who are believers, imagine this. You can sit here looking at Scripture, provided Bibles are still available, and know what's going to happen. Because it's right here. Can you imagine people saying, oh, that must have been bowl five. Bowl six is coming. And then bowl seven, then it'll be over. As long, you know, and, and I, I, I imagine this is going to be something for people living during that day. That day. So our Lord will return. He will judge the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 31, 46. There will be this great judgment happening. I believe it's the Valley of Megiddo and, uh, or in that area, the Jezreel. And that's where God is going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And then, of course, we also know there's about 75 days or so, I believe, between the end of the tribulation, which we'll get into, and the start of the millennial kingdom. It doesn't happen instantly. There's preparation for it. Um, so anyway, he will ultimately establish his kingdom. So next time we're going to be looking at Revelation 16, which highlights the seven bold judgments. And then a question we're going to ask ourselves is, does repentance occur or not? Do people repent? Repent. 